Good morning, Fairfax. You know, during rehearsal today, you know, they were playing that song. It was kind of like, seemed like low key at the time, but you guys like lift this worship team up to a whole nother level. So round applause for yourselves on that. So uh, whether you're in the blue seats or in the great room, watching online, or maybe you're watching online two years in the future in the archive section of the, of, of the uh, website. Uh, welcome, welcome. And my name is Mike, and this is, oh, before I forget, Ronnie, before I introduce Ronnie. Today's extra special because it's baptism weekend. So, so I was baptized here January 3rd, 2020, in the middle of the winter, and one of my fears was that the pool was going to be cold because it is winter and that pool's like right by that window, you know? I'm like, oh, the pool's going to be cold. But man, it is heated. So like I got in there and I'm like, man, I just want to float around and take it easy. It's really, really nice. So maybe we'll have open swim days here at the church. I don't know. Um, but man, it's great. I'm so glad for you that are about to get baptized, the public declaration of your decision to follow Christ. There's nothing like it. So, so anyway, this is Ronnie. Hey, Fairfax. <laughs> Come on, one more time for baptism weekend. Such, uh, just my favorite weekends of the year. Uh, some other stuff we have going on. Um, starting October 18th, we're gonna be running our Emotionally Spiritual Hair, Emotionally healthy spirituality. I got that one out. Um, we did this in the spring and it was just an incredible response from everyone who participated. Um, and so it, you can go on to our website now, cl uh, click the QR code that's either on the seat next to you or in your seat. Um, and it'll give you more information. You could find out more, you can register. Uh, Mike, you attended this in the spring. Yeah, I, so I went to the emotionally healthy spirituality class because I was feeling neither spiritual nor healthy and I was being very emotional so I took the class <laughs> and it was great um, it's a, it's eight week eight, eight weeks long um, it's just very engaging you know this place doesn't lock the doors at 11 o'clock on a Sunday and say okay guys we'll see you next Sunday at eight o'clock um, there's something going on all the time. It's like a beehive of activity. I was here Thursday for the Israeli, the Israel trip. Uh, everyone going on the Israel trip, you know, we're meeting uh, to get the logistics and everything. And it was really cool because I walk in and there's a sign and, the, and like a sign points an arrow to like a Bible study. And then another arrow saying, you know, here's a men's group study and here's a women's group. So there's always something going on here. It, it's all week long. And it was really cool because like I, I drive up and there's all these cars in a parking lot, you know, at a six o'clock, 6.30 on, on a Thursday. So there's always something going on. And you can find out what's going on by scanning the code on, on the cards or go online. Um, there's so many ways to, to plug in. There's so many ways that you can elevate your relationship with God through this church. Uh, care groups, Bible studies, extra special ones like the emotionally unhealthy spirituality for my class. Um, there's so many different ways so that, that elevate and, and, and just get you plugged into the Holy Spirit um, that helps bring a little bit of heaven uh, 
right here in Fairfax, as Rod likes to call it. And, and that's one of the ways we do that. And we actually have another uh, thing starting in just a couple of weeks. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, that? I know it's very personal okay, to you. Okay, so, so Rod's going to get up here and talk about a couple things. He's going to talk about identity. He's going to talk about redemption. So, so there's different ways I can introduce myself. You know, hi, I'm Mike. I'm a follower of, of Jesus. Hi, my name is Mike. I go to Fairfax Church. Hi, my name is Mike. I have ADD. There's a squirrel. Um, but the most important, one of the most important ways I identify is this, is I introduce myself this way. I say, hi, my name is Mike and I'm an alcoholic. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, there's an alcoholic in the, in the house. I'm the poster child for alcoholism. On the website, you'll see, you know, lead pastor Rod, you'll see Ronnie there, and then it'll say Mike, alcoholic, right? Um, but the difference is I'm an alcoholic in recovery, okay? Amen. Thank you. So November 5th, 2004 is my anniversary date. So I'm coming up on 18 years, right? <laughs> so, so how did I do it? Well, I found a fellowship of men and women who share their, the same struggles. And in that fellowship, I, I had a mentor there who, who would, <laughs> he'd said, I'm like, what is the key? What do I do? And he's like, it's one thing. So if you remember the movie City Slickers and, and uh, what was his name? Curly is like, it's just one thing. So all movie long, he's trying to figure out what, what that one thing is. And that one thing is to find God to find God, to work God into my life, to turn my will over to God. And so the cool thing is, is in that group, there were some Christians. And those are the ones who brought me to Christ. They gave me mustard seeds every once in a while, right? And I started exploring Christianity in one day. Okay, it was September 14th, 2020, is where I said I'm ready to follow Christ. So. If I weren't an alcoholic, I may not be a Christian today. So you see how that brokenness brought victory, and that victory is all God's. Okay. I had nothing to do with it. All I had was the willingness, and that's all it takes. So we're starting on Tuesdays, starting on October the 11th, a care group for men and women who share their struggles with alcoholism and drug addiction. Alcoholism, drug addiction, drug use, alcohol use, it's, it's designed for those who want to come together and invite Jesus into the conversation, who want to use the Bible as one of the tools. Because what better, you know, what better book about life and how to live is there than the Bible itself and in, in Jesus' words. So we get to invite Christ in there. He's at the head of the table and we get to share our experience, strength and hope. But the most important person in those meetings is gonna be the newcomer. So if you know you have a problem and you just can't stop, you know there's help. You know there are people that have gone before you that claim victory because they brought Jesus into the conversation, right? Um, 
confidentiality is important in that group. So who you see there and what is said there will stay there. So if you want more information about this care group, you can, when you go out, uh, the, there's a care group table, you can talk to them, you can go online. But if you're too shy uh, to talk to the care group, you know, grab me, you see me walking around, pull me aside, whether it's today, next month, next year, you know, please feel free that you can come talk to me. Um, this group is also open to anyone um, outside the church as well. So if you have family members or friends that are looking for uh, fellowship and with Jesus that, 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 that want to bring Jesus into the conversation, just, you know, tell them about this. You know, anyone's welcome. We're not going to check like the Fairfax uh, Church, you know, ID cards at the door. Everyone's welcome. Um, so that's why it's very special to me, this group. I'm very excited because of the healing and the spiritual growth that will occur um, during that time. So thanks for letting me share. Mike, thank you for sharing, man. So one of the groups that I get to work with, um, and I think we've all been a part of probably over the last couple of years, is our online community and that growing online community. Um, every service, every Sunday, we have uh, three different platforms where people are joining um, and maybe experiencing Fairfax for the first time. Uh, so we're currently uh, looking for an online community director. Uh, we're looking for someone to come on and really cultivate that community and continue to help bringing people uh, to meet Christ at all levels. And so we're always thankful to see you online. And uh, if this is something you're interested in, uh, scan the QR code or click the link in the chat and find out some more information. And lastly, we talk each week about uh, generosity. Um, sometimes we talk about how it impacts our community. Sometimes we talk about uh, the current things we're working on. And as I, um, as I was talking to Caleb this morning, it just, uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about like my journey to generosity. Um, and I think some of us grew up, and I know Pastor Rod talked about he grew up with uh, a model for what generosity looked like. And some of us didn't grow up with that. And so um, there's just a lifelong journey of experiences and some of my experiences I didn't realize till later in life what they were. Um, I grew up in Dallas. Uh, we were pretty plugged into a church there um, until I was about in third grade. And so looking back and seeing, uh, coming home sometimes from school and there just being groceries on the front door um, or groceries in the truck. Our family didn't grow up with a lot of resources and I didn't know what it was. And as I got older, I realized that was our church community surrounding us. and. Um, as I got married and my wife and I tried to figure out what it means to live this generous life, we just kept seeking wisdom. Uh, my father-in-law told me, he's like, every time I've tithed, God always provided. And when I decided not to, I found myself struggling. And so filed it away and I still knew better. Um, but then Scott Dixon stepped in. Uh, I joined a men's group, I don't know, 12 years ago, just trying to figure out what it meant to uh, be a man of God, uh, to be a, a Christian father. And uh, every time we would talk about giving or finances, he would just say, it's all God's anyway. And it was just this incredible um, encouragement and reminder to me. So uh, be encouraged wherever you're at. Um, if this is a part of the community that you're looking to get engaged with, you can find out more information online, but uh, we appreciate all that you guys do. And uh, we're in the last week of Ruth. So before we get to that, check out this video. Thanks y'all. God is always at work behind the scenes to redeem the situation. He's at work in every encounter, in 
great hearing Mike's testimony uh, of how God has been at work. It's so cool. And Mike, we do use the pool, the baptismal pool during the week. I do laps every morning and uh, it's small, so I do about 12,000 laps and it takes about 15 minutes, so it's awesome. Uh, Some of you may notice that if you're uh, with us online, you may not be able to kind of see this, but if you're in the room, you notice that uh, there's some things going on. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we're repainting uh, all of this in the sanctuary, and we have an amazing crew that comes in during the week and uh, does the work and, uh, and, and puts up all this protective stuff to keep this uh, safe and, uh, and then takes it all down so that we can gather together for worship, and which we really appreciate how they've worked with us for this. So we've got about another week in here. Uh, then they'll be moving out into the Lobby and uh, coffee shop area and the hallways, you'll kind of see stuff going on. And then we're going to be doing more things related to the renovate. And so the next two months are going to be crazy, crazy, crazy. And uh, so just kind of uh, uh, we'll all kind of do this together, pardon the dust, uh, all of that. But it's going to be a really amazing thing when we get uh, finished, which we're hoping will be... um, in the, in the middle of December that will be done with everything, everything related to, to renovate. So thank you so much for the generosity that you have shown that has allowing us to do uh, this. And uh, we're, really, uh, we're really thankful for what God uh, is doing through it. So we're in the fourth week, the final week of this series in Ruth. And I mentioned the first week that at its core, Ruth is a love story. It's a love story Uh, between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, which is just really awesome. It's a love story between a man and a woman, and it's a a love story that's all about God's love for us. In fact, ultimately, that's what it's about. But it's a love story that's forged in the midst of incredibly difficult times. And as I've mentioned before, even though God is barely mentioned in the book, His activity is woven behind the scenes in everything that you see. And that's why we called the series Behind the Scenes, because God is at work, as he is in our lives, oftentimes in ways that are not not incredibly visible, not ways that kind of scream out God, but that God is at work behind the scenes. And he's at work behind the scenes in Ruth, just every decision, every event that takes place, every struggle that they are facing to accomplish something good. So we're going to wrap this up today by looking at Ruth 4. But before we we get to that, I want to give a little kind of overview of the story because I know not everyone is here every week. And even if you've been here every week, sometimes it's good just to get a kind of a here's what happened last week kind of thing that sets you up for what we're going to be talking about today. So basically, this is the narrative. A family from Bethlehem in the midst of a devastating famine, they immigrate to a neighboring country, Moab. And shortly after arriving in Moab, the father, Elimelech, dies, leaving his wife, Naomi, a widow. And then their two sons, Malan and Kilian, marry a couple of local girls from Moab, Orpah and Ruth. And about 10 years later, no children, 
Both of the sons die. And so now you have three widows, three deaths, anarchy in Israel because it's the time of the judges. And we're told in Scripture that during the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it's anarchy. And that's what's going on in Israel. And you have this devastating economic um, effect of this massive famine. And so it's an incredibly rough start, incredibly difficult beginning to a love story. Now, in traditional culture, like Naomi was living in, there were only four ways that a widow could survive. One, a widow could work, which meant uh, incredibly physical labor, working in the fields, uh, very, very physically demanding. But um, Naomi is really, at this point, too old and too kind of beaten down at this point to take on that kind of physical activity. Uh, secondly, a widow could get remarried. But Naomi is too old to get remarried, which sounds really weird in our culture because we can get married at any age. You're never too old to get married. But in traditional culture, you didn't marry for companionship. Uh, companionship. You didn't marry for sex. You married to produce children who could provide cheap labor and carry on the family name. Uh, back then, children actually made you money, which is an interesting concept that none of us can relate to, and we don't know exactly we don't know what that is. But back then, children actually made you money rather than cost you money. So that was the second thing. But again, Naomi, that was not an option for Naomi. Third, a widow could have their children support them, but her two sons had already died, so that was not an option. And fourth, a widow could rent the family land to someone who could work it, and then they get income from that. But the family land had been sold when Naomi and Elimelech had moved to Moab. So Naomi's in this incredibly hopeless situation, but God is at work behind the scenes in ways that Naomi couldn't possibly imagine. And one of the ways that he's at work is through uh, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, because of her hesed love for her mother-in-law, her hesed love for Naomi, and Kyle did a great job unpacking all that last week, refuses to leave Naomi's side, and at great personal risk, she leaves her own country and goes back to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, to help her survive. And when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to glean the edges of the fields. And, uh, and that's important because in Jewish law, Jewish law of uh, forbid landowners from maximizing profit. You can make profit, no problem making profit, but they forbid kind of the maximizing of profit when it came to kind of the harvesting by harvesting all the way to the edges of the field. And so they would literally cut corners. They would cut the corners and leave the corners of the field unharvested so that those that were poor could come and could glean what was left over the unharvested part of the field and could provide some help. And so he allows her to do that. Ruth just happens to start gleaning in a field that is owned by Boaz. And Boaz shows Ruth the same kind of hesed love that, they, that Ruth uh, has shown to Naomi. And he lets Ruth harvest in the middle of the field. He invites her to lunch. He provides her water. And most importantly, he tells her workers not to harm her. And the reason that's so important is because Ruth was a Moabite. And the Moabites were descendants of Sodom. 
And that group had historically oppressed the Israelites in horrible, unspeakable kind of ways. So the Israelites hated them and, and knew that, and Boaz knew that as soon as his guys found out that Ruth was a Moabite, that they would probably hurt her in some way. And so he tells them, hands off Ruth, you can't touch Ruth, leave Ruth alone. She is not to be harmed. Now, Ruth, at this moment in the story, doesn't realize that Boaz is actually a relative of Naomi and has the legal and financial power to help restore kind of the financial fortunes of the family. And when Naomi finds out that Ruth is working in Boaz's field, she immediately puts together this plan to try and get Boaz to marry Ruth. And so in chapter 3, that Kyle dealt with last week, we see this romantically charged scene where Ruth goes to the threshing floor where Boaz is sleeping and lays at his feet. And when he wakes up in the middle of the night, Ruth says to him, cover me with your garment, which literally meant marry me, which was an incredibly bold uh, thing to say, especially in that culture. And surprisingly, Boaz immediately says, yes. But then you get to the end of chapter three, and there's a twist. Boaz tells Ruth that there's actually an even closer relative who has the legal right, first in line, has the legal right to marry her and restore the family. So at the end of chapter three, we're left wondering, like, what's going to happen here? Is Ruth going to marry this amazing guy, Boaz, who has shown this Hesed love and has been so compassionate, shown mercy? That's who we're rooting for as we're reading the story. That's what we want to happen. Uh, or is this jerk going to come along and ruin the whole story? And like, what's going to happen? Is the first in line, like, what's going to take place? And now we come to chapter four. And we see Boaz at the city gate, which is essentially the courthouse, waiting to find out what this other guy, who's first in line, is going to do. And everything kind of hinges on that decision. And here's how we start in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. And when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, <laughs> and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. And Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother, not actually brother, but relative, extended relative, our brother Elimelech. And I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and then I'm next in line. And the guy looks at Boaz and he says, I'll do it. I will redeem it. And we read that and we go, shoot. <laughs> I, I said something else in the first service that shall never see the light of day. And uh, no, I didn't, it, was, it wasn't that bad actually. So. It was, a, it was the Christian version of something bad, okay? So, like, it's, it's allowed in church. So anyway, 
he says, no, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. Now, we talked a little bit kind of around this idea over the last three weeks of a kinsman redeemer. But let me just unpack this a little bit more and talk about the unique role that this played in the life of Israel at this particular time in history. Basically, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, that's the the Hebrew word for it, the goel, the kinsman redeemer, was one of several provisions that God made in the law that he gave to Moses to help families that had fallen on hard times. So, and all of this is kind of outlined in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is filled with all this mosaic law, the laws that God had given Moses. And some of the laws that are in there are provisions that God gave particularly to kind of help vulnerable, vulnerable families, families that had fallen on hard times financially and had been forced to sell their land. And in an agrarian culture, uh, land was the primary way to make a living. So when you sold it, that income was lost, not just to you and your immediate family, but for generations to come. Like this was, land was everything. That was your retirement. That was your future. That was the financial trajectory of your family. It was everything. And so if a piece of land in the midst of a really, really difficult financial period of time where someone had accumulated debts or couldn't work the land or whatever, if a piece of land got sold or got taken away, that didn't just impact you, that impact generations to come in your family. So it was a huge, huge deal. And the prospect of that is that then you have generations of families that are kind of stuck in this never-ending cycle of poverty, and you have other families that are in this cycle of wealth because land is getting redistributed. So the provision of the law was that if that land had been lost, it could be redeemed, it could be purchased back by a member of the extended family. It was a way of keeping families together and it was a way of breaking the cycle of what would otherwise be endless generations of poverty. And it kept the land in the family, it gave the family kind of a second chance, um, a do-over. Uh, a chance to uh, change the financial trajectory of their family for generations to come. It truly was this act of redemption. It truly was this act of a second chance, a do-over, a mulligan, whatever you want to call it. It was like another chance to start over. And Boaz is positioned to be the goel. He's second in line to be the goel, the kinsman redeemer for Naomi who is the only one left in her immediate family. But being the kinsman redeemer comes at a high price, particularly in this case. And if Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, Boaz has to purchase back Naomi's land at his own expense. But secondly, Naomi has no heirs that can work the land and that the land can be passed down to. So Boaz would be required to marry Naomi and produce children, but Naomi is too old to have children, so he would be um, required to marry Ruth instead. But marrying Ruth comes at a great risk. First of all, he would be marrying a Moabite woman, and as I've already mentioned, the Israelites hated 
the Moabites because of all of the abusive things that had been done for generations at the hands of the Moabites. And so marrying a Moabite woman would put him at some level at risk. And secondly, any children that he had with Ruth, and this is what oftentimes gets overlooked in this passage, is that any children he had with Ruth would not technically be his, Boaz's, heirs. They would be the heirs of Ruth's husband who has already died, which in a culture where status and standing is all about who your heirs are would be a huge sacrifice for Boaz. Now, as you notice in the text, the guy who is actually first in line to be the Goel, to be the kinsman redeemer, says, yeah, sign me up. I want to do this. But then this happens, starting in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And he knows at this point that, oh yeah, it's not just that I do that, but it means that since she can't produce children that I would be marrying someone else. I'd be marrying Ruth and then everything's different and The kinsman redeemer at that says, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate, the property he already has. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilian and Malan. And I also acquired Ruth the Moabitess and Malan's Malan's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. So at first, let me just unpack this a little bit. At first, the guy that was first in line to be the kinsman redeemer, redeemer, he thinks this is a sweet deal. Before he thinks about it, he thinks this is a sweet land acquisition deal. He thought since Naomi was well past her child-rearing years or child-bearing years that the only thing he had to do was like care for her until she died. And then since her two sons were already dead, the land would revert back to him and to his heirs and it would be an easy way to accumulate more wealth. But Boaz reminds the guy that this isn't just about purchasing a piece of property. It's about entering into a relationship where there is a lot of risk and actually very little financial gain. In fact, since Ruth was a very young woman, there was a very good chance that she would have many heirs and even this guy's own estate that he already had, that he already possessed, would be divided among all of those other heirs as well. And when he realizes the cost, when he realizes the risk, when he realizes the sacrifice that this is going to be, he bails. And now we come to the pinnacle of this incredible love story. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Now, a couple of things here. When the text says that Ruth was better to Naomi than seven sons, it's not just a declaration of how awesome Ruth is. Ruth was awesome. But this is not just a declaration of, oh, look how great Ruth is. The term seven sons is actually a way of talking about the perfect family. Seven was like the heavenly number. We've talked about that when we've done other sermon series. We've talked in Revelation and in Daniel and other places in Scripture where seven is like the symbolic number that is about perfection and about heaven. It's like the heavenly number. So seven sons was actually a phrase, a euphemism for talking about the perfect family. And in a culture where family determined your status in society and your standing in society, the perfect family was everything. It's what gave you your sense of identity. It's what, it's what communicated to the world like who you are. Like that came that standing, that status came from your family. So when the women say to Naomi that Ruth is better to you than seven sons, they are actually telling Naomi that her identity is not rooted in having the perfect family. Her identity is rooted in God's grace that was manifested in Ruth's Hesed love. And that that, in a culture where like the highest value is to have the perfect family, that this, God's grace manifested through Ruth's Hesed love, is of greater value and gives Naomi more of a sense of her identity than even the perfect family. It was a revolutionary thing to say. One of the biggest temptations I think that we face is our temptation to try to create our own sense of identity, to kind of create our sense of who we are. And in our 21st century postmodern performance-driven culture, it may not be the perfect family anymore that people turn to in an attempt to create their own sense of identity. But it's other things. Maybe it's the perfect body or the perfect career path or the perfect dating relationship or the perfect resume or the perfect house or the perfect retirement account or whatever it is that we look to to get a sense of who we are, to get a sense of our identity, to present ourselves to the world. In our culture, people try to create their own sense of identity through beauty and accomplishments and wealth. But those are fragile identities. And they're fragile identities because if our identity is rooted in our beauty, then when our beauty fades, we lose our sense of identity. If our identity is rooted in our accomplishments, then when we accomplish less or we don't perform quite as well, then we lose our sense of identity. 
If our identity is rooted in our wealth, then when we go through difficult times, financially we lose a sense of our identity. But when our identity is rooted in God's grace, in God's hesed love for us, then no matter what happens, we will not lose our sense of identity. That no matter what is going on in our lives, we will not lose the sense of who we are at our core. Now the Goel, the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, is actually pointing to another Goel, another kinsman redeemer. Another Goel, another kinsman redeemer who has also been willing to pay the price who has been willing to sacrifice whatever it took, who was not willing to walk away when the price was his life so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be saved. The book of Ruth is pointing to Jesus. The book of Ruth is pointing to the Messiah, even though at that point in history, like in the time of the judges, the specificity of Jesus, of Nazareth, and what would come, they had no idea. And yet somehow as God weaves this book together, it is pointing to the Redeemer, the Messiah, to Jesus. Look again at what the women said to Naomi. Praise be to the Lord who to this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now you think at that point, as you read that, that he's talk, they're talking about Boaz, right? Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is the one who has redeemed the land. Boaz is the one who has married Ruth, that he's the kinsman redeemer. But it says, may he become famous throughout Israel. But Boaz is already famous. He's already well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And you go, well, that can't be Boaz because Ruth didn't give birth to Boaz. She gave birth to Obed. But we're, they're talking about more than just Obed here because without knowing all the specifics, they're talking about the one who would be born through the lineage of Obed. They're talking about the Messiah. In a very real sense, Ruth has given birth to the ultimate kinsman redeemer. And we're reminded of that by the way the book of Ruth ends. <laughs> it ends like you would think this amazing love story would end with this incredible kind of flourish and finish that kind of wraps this whole love story up. But actually the book of Ruth ends with this incredibly mundane, incredibly ordinary listing of the lineage of a guy named Perez that we haven't even heard of up to this point. And this is how it ends. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, 
the father of David. And from David comes the line, the lineage of the Messiah. Think about that. God takes all of these very ordinary events, all of these at times very, very difficult events in Ruth's life, in Naomi's life, in Boaz's life, and weaves them together with the very ordinary events in the lives of those who have gone before them and the very ordinary events in the lives that have are those who come behind them to provide a goel, a kinsman redeemer who will change the world, who will redeem the world. And the story of Ruth, and this is how I want to wrap this whole thing up. I think the story of Ruth like invites us to ask ourselves a really important question. And the question is, have you embraced the sacredness of the ordinary in your life? Have you embraced the idea that doing something great for God is not about doing something extraordinary? It's about inviting God into the ordinary things of your life. The little decisions, the, the little tasks, your everyday relationships, the way you respond to challenging situations, the little acts of obedience that don't seem to be like this Huge deal, but these little acts of obedience, like where we put ourselves in the yes position to God. Thinking about the people that are being baptized today. And this act of obedience, of being baptized. And baptism, of course, is not what saves us. It's not what determines our eternal destiny. But it's this, it's this act of obedience that God says, I, I want you to take this, this step of obedience, this act of obedience, and, and declare what I have done in your life. And I'll use that. I'll use that to bring about my redemptive work in this world. And there's all of these other things. All these little acts of obedience. All of these little tasks. All of these little decisions. All these little things that we do. These, the daily, the ordinariness of life that end up being used by God, woven together in such a way that it changes the world. See, we get so caught up sometimes in like, God, when are you going to do something big with my life? When are you going to do something huge? When am I going to be a part of like your, your world-changing effort? Like, what is that all about? I'm looking for that. I'm praying for that. I'm looking ahead for that. And God is saying, it is right here. It is all around you. It's every day. The decisions you make, the things that you do, the obedience that you show, the way in which you respond, the way in which you react. God is saying, I take that. I take the ordinary, mundane things in your life. And I weave them together in such a way that it changes the world. 
Sometimes we downplay the importance of what we're doing because it doesn't seem that significant. But just like with Ruth, God is always at work behind the scenes, weaving our story into his grand story of redemption. So embrace the sacredness of the ordinary in your life. Don't miss, don't miss the sacredness of the ordinary in your life. Because it's those ordinary looking things that God will use to change the world. God, we are so thankful for stories like Ruth's and Boaz's and Naomi's. Stories of challenge and difficulty and unexpected kinsmen redeemers. That you weave and work together in ways that accomplish your redemptive mission in this world. And Lord, we pray that we will not miss it. (laughs) That we will not, in our looking for the big thing that you want us to do, that we will not miss the sacredness of the ordinary in our lives. And that we would invite you in to everything, every decision, every response, every relationship, every choice. We would invite you in. Not so that we can do something extraordinary, but so that you can take all of that and weave it together in a way to accomplish the, ordina- the extraordinary redemptive work that you are doing in this world. Lord, we give you thanks. And we pray for anyone who is here today in this space or is with us online who the yes that they have not yet given is the yes to accept you as Savior and as Lord of their lives and to say yes to your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that even in this moment that they would say yes to you. And in that simple decision that you use it not only to transform them but to transform the world. In the name of Christ we pray. And everyone said, Amen.